Welcome to the Global Franchise Podcast, your essential companion when navigating the world of international franchising. I'm Kieran McLoon, Deputy Editor for Global Franchise Magazine. This episode of the Global Franchise Podcast is brought to you by Expense Reduction Analysts, delivering cost optimization solutions to help international business survive and thrive. For more information, visit expensereduction.com. It's often said that necessity is the mother of invention, and that was certainly the case when Little Kickers first entered the children's education space. Founder Christine Kelly wanted her two-year-old son to be able to learn how to play football, or soccer for our American listeners, but couldn't find a club that catered to children that young. So, in 2002, she decided to create her own brand, and now, over 18 years later, Little Kickers has become a global network with over 330 clubs in 34 countries. In fact, just this year, Little Kickers took home two global franchise awards, being named both the Best Children's and Education Franchise, as well as this year's Global Franchise Champion. In this episode, we speak with Christine about the secrets behind her brand's exponential growth, how she identifies the perfect people to coach the classes, and what's next for this multi-award winning concept. Hi, Christine. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks very much for inviting me to speak to you. Yeah, no, sure thing. Thank you very much for taking the time to to join us on the podcast. Um, if we could start just by going back to that initial founding of the brand in 2002, um, which I read, I think, was for just a £300 initial investment. Um, I was curious to hear about how Little Kickers has evolved since then and grown into this really worldwide franchise network that you've now got. Sure. it's. Um, I'll try and condense 18 years of, <laughs> sure thing, <laughs> of yeah. work into a couple of minutes. But um, but yeah, I mean, I set, I set up the business back in 2002. Um, at the time, I was working at JP Morgan and um, really struggling with the work-life balance. I was traveling a lot with work. I loved my job. I really liked all the people I worked with. But, um, but after I'd had my son, I just found it was pretty unmanageable. I was traveling a lot, working really, really long hours. Um, so I decided that I'd take a bit of a break from work and, um, and discovered that my son really loved football. I was living in London at the time and we'd, we'd go down to Wandsworth Common every day and he would like fire goal or balls past me into the goal. And uh, when I was growing up, um, women didn't really play football in the UK. So it wasn't really kind of offered as a sport option at school. So, um, so you know, really, I was kind of looking around to see whether there was anybody who might do a better job than I would of teaching him how to play football. And he was two at the time. And I just couldn't find any clubs that catered for kids under the age of, of five. Um, right. So I decided to just run a little pilot really for him and his friends um, and just see whether there was a demand for preschool football classes. So I, I found a coach in, in a play park um, who was playing football with his son. He looked like he kind of knew what he was doing. And it turned out he was an FA level one qualified coach, which was quite a stroke of luck. <laughs> and um, he and I set up the, or I set up the, the kind of first pilot that we ran. It got oversubscribed by 400%. Um, and I asked all the parents who attended whether they'd be interested in paying for a 12-week block of classes, and they pretty much all said they would. So I decided at that point that actually perhaps there was kind of, you know, a way out of banking and, um, and into a kind of career that I could do from home and that might be a little bit more kind of fun and interesting. So, uh, so yeah, it kind of grew from there, really. So I, I decided that probably a good strategy at that point because the barriers to entry were pretty low. It didn't cost much to get it kind of set up. I mean, as you mentioned, it was, it was 300 pounds to get me to that point. Um, so I decided to try and set up as many classes as I, as I could um, in the areas of London where I thought I might find competitors popping up. 
So by the end of the first year of operating, we had 35 classes running in London and it was getting really, really busy. And I was really kind of struggling to keep up with demand and actually not seeing as much of Lucas as I would have liked to at that point. So I decided that if I was going to carry on growing the business, then I needed to come up with a way of doing that that would enable me to make sure that the quality was maintained, um, but that also would enable me to scale pretty quickly. Um, and I kind of stumbled across franchising, really. I wasn't massively familiar with it as a concept. I did huge amounts of research. And um, our first franchisee came on board in 2004. Um, she's up in North London. She's still with us, actually, kind of still operating as a franchisee very successfully. Um, and from there on in, it just kind of grew um, mainly through word of mouth, but it grew very quickly. In the first year, we sold 25 franchises in the UK. Um, and then it kind of carried on from there, really. 2006 was our first international franchisee. That was in uh, South Africa. 2009, we got into Australia and New Zealand. And then 2010, Hong Kong, et cetera, et cetera. And the business has just really kind of taken off and grown since since then. Yeah. And um, within that first really exponential year where you'd signed up the 25 UK franchisees, I mean, for a, for a concept really in its infancy, even then you'd only been operating independently for two years um why do you believe that it took hold so quickly and suddenly you had such an influx of um people wanting to invest in little kickers yeah i mean it was um it was quite a surprise to me to be honest but the business i think people had seen how quickly it had grown throughout london um and i think they'd seen that it was a very scalable business model um and the other thing that kind of struck me was that i wasn't the only one who was in this position where i you know had gone back to work after having kids and was really struggling with work life balance i came across loads and loads and loads of other people as my friends all kind of started to have kids who were in exactly that same boat so i think there was a pretty captive audience of people who who wanted an alternative to kind of going back to the 9 to 5 and our first few franchisees um pretty much all of them were were kind of ex career women kind of like myself they'd come out of you know banking or accountancy or law and wanted something really that would fit in well around the rest of their lives and enable them to spend a bit more time with their kids while they were growing up but also set up a kind of you know financially rewarding and successful business and feel like they were achieving something so um so I think that really struck a nerve at the time is you know as I said franchising was pretty new to the UK market but the way we introduced it people could grasp the concept of what we were doing pretty easily the financial model was um, relatively straightforward um, and there was a captive audience of people who are interested in getting involved. And um, for people who may not be aware of how Little Kickers operates, the the kind of idea of the concept um, I've read is that you you know it was always to promote fun over competitiveness, especially where you're dealing with children uh, who are of such a young age. Um, could you kind of explain a little how you achieve that through the classes and what the experience of um, engaging with Little Kickers looks like from the consumer side? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a real tendency, um, or there was a real tendency to try with children's sports to kind of replicate adult sports. So everything has to be around competition and winning. And we really didn't want that. So our kind of motto going into this was play, not push. So getting kids out and playing rather than pushing them to become like, you know, the next football superstar and I think it always is a bit disheartening I've seen it quite a bit as my own kids have grown up when you go along to tournaments and things like that that they're in and the parents kind of almost get more into it than the kids um, and so we really wanted to avoid that kind of thing and just make sure that the kids were enjoying themselves and I think really as with anything you learn in life if you're enjoying while you're learning things you kind of they tend to stick better and you tend to want to carry on doing them so we introduced a concept called learning through stealth 
um, which is basically when when you watch one of our classes, typically you'll just think that the kids are having a really good time. They're doing a lot of imagination based games, role play, things like that. Um, but actually, there's a, a lot of very serious early learning content that's delivered through the classes, the, the football classes. So children aren't just learning the basics of football. They're also learning things like colours, numbers, socialisation, parts of the body and so on. And this kind of worked really, really well in the UK when we launched there. And kind of next after the UK really was a lot of the Anglophone markets and it worked well in those. But what we found was, um, you know, in, in some other markets around the world, parents weren't so thrilled about the idea that their kids were coming along to a class once a week just to have fun. This was kind of mainly markets like India and China and Indonesia, where it was viewed very much that you know children should be spending their time outside of, of kind of a nursery setting doing something that was educational. So we knew that our program was very educational, but it just wasn't obvious to the kind of, you know, the parent on the sidelines watching the class. So what we decided to do back in 2018 was introduce badges. So every child in our program is working towards a specific set of skills that they will acquire over three month period. And then once they've acquired those skills, they get a badge to reward them for doing that. And um, we found that that's been really good because a lot of parents, it, particularly in the emerging markets where there's not such emphasis placed on kind of sport as a, as a fun thing to do, because they're still kind of relatively early in the, in the learning curve of, of the whole kind of sport as, as fun for kids um, process, um, we can actually show them a map which will show them from, you know, when their child's 18 months old until their seventh birthday, if they continue with our programme, all the different skills that they'll be working to, towards and that hopefully, you know, they'll achieve over that time frame. So the badges have been pretty important in those markets. Um, and then I think just to kind of finish off on that, obviously some markets, we have to be a little bit more competitive than others. And I, I kind of overall, the, the objective is to try and get kids to just enjoy sport and not really be super competitive. But um, I went down to Quito um, a couple of years ago and visited our franchisees there and they put on this massive tournament. And it, I've never seen anything quite so competitive, but it was actually the coaches who were really competitive for their kids that were coming to their classes, wanting them to beat other kids. So that was kind of an interesting take on that kind of play, not push concept. <laughs> I think it hasn't necessarily translated well into every market, but uh, but it seems to be kind of, you know, most places it seems to work pretty well. Yeah, well, it's a good foundation to build upon, at least, I suppose, that markets can then, I mean, it's all about adaptation, isn't it, global franchising? So how they can then absolutely adjust it to their own. Um, talking about 2018 there and when you guys introduced the, the badge system. Um, I read that there was quite a few substantial changes because that was around when was it Alan Kennedy joined as the the Little Kickers Group CEO, um, and yeah. as well as the the badge system, there was a few back end uh, support changes. So you had a new payment model, a new CRM system. Um, could you kind of talk to a little about how significant 2018 was as a year in terms of evolving the Little Kickers brand and some of the things that you did to. Um, if not prepare it for, you know, a pandemic, because two years ago, nobody knew this was going to happen. But maybe some of the things that have allowed you to be really future prepped. Yeah, absolutely. It all kind of started really in November 2017, um, when we decided that we were going to embark on a project which we called making little kickers as important as breakfast so we wanted it to be a critical thing in every child's life around the world and that was the kind of the first idea behind this and so the next step was to say right how do we do that and um, we came up with a kind of three-pronged approach to doing that the first thing was um, to introduce the badge scheme that I've already, already kind of mentioned and obviously that's really good for stickiness and retention children want to get their badges parents want to make sure that they achieve all of the learning goals so that was brilliant for the kind of retention side of things. Um, we recognised at that time 
that the IT system we were using was kind of creaking a little bit at the seams. We'd, we'd grown to be much bigger than we'd expected. Um, we were, you know, franchisees were sometimes struggling to get the, the system to work as fast as they might like. And also that we knew there was a lot of stuff coming with um, data protection and stuff that we would need to fully refit the system for. So we started to look around at different IT solutions. And one of the things that we kind of stumbled across to a degree was um, the monthly recurring revenue model. Um, it's actually a brilliant book I read about this called The Automatic Customer by John Warlow and um, bought a copy for all of our management team. And it basically explains in detail the kind of benefits to a business of moving from a model where parent or where somebody would sign up for a you know, 12-week course in advance, which is kind of how we have been operating, to actually taking a monthly fee from customers. And, um, you know, we, we were in this point in time where every eight weeks into a course, we'd be ringing up parents and saying, do you really want to carry on for another 12 weeks? So kind of effectively giving them the opportunity to decide that they didn't want to. So what we decided, you know, with this switch to the monthly recurring revenues, that the customer would actually just the money would be taken every month from them and they would then contact us if they didn't want to continue coming to classes. Um, and they would just give us a month's notice and they could stop. And that model worked really, and it has very proven um, impacts on revenue and so on and, and customer retention. And, um, and certainly we found when we introduced it to the UK market, our franchisee revenues went up by 25% in the first year we introduced it. So it's kind of worked really well and it seems to have had a similar impact globally. Um, and the third thing that we did at that point was we haven't really done a massive push into digital marketing we kind of obviously dipped our toes into the water and we've done a bit of facebook and things like that instagram but we haven't really um you know all out explored it and, and committed to it as an approach for all of our franchisees so uh, we took on a digital marketing agency at that point in time and um you know that was that had a huge impact on the business as well so those are the kind of three main things that we were looking at and poor old alan here arrived march 2018 to uh, this this huge change management program like probably the, the the most change we had ever made to the business in one <laughs> go and uh, you can imagine with 330 franchisees in 30 odd different countries it was quite difficult to get everybody to, to buy into it so alan had this enormous enormous task to do that and he's done a phenomenal job i think kind of what helped him to a degree was we introduced a lot of these changes into the uk first um which is our biggest market so it was kind of in theory the most challenging one to introduce them to and we had resistance from franchisees but once they saw that this was working quite well for them and all three of these things were actually positives for the business they became our biggest advocates and they were they were at that point kind of chatting to franchisees in other countries and basically selling them on the concepts that we'd proven in the uk so it actually worked out really well but um but yeah i didn't envy alan at that point in time taking over as ceo and having this enormous program of change to push through no, it's certainly thrown in at the deep end, but it's good that, um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually, that the fact that the UK, obviously, you know, is kind of your home market while you'd make those changes, but it's almost that you you don't need to sell it to your international market because, as you say, the franchisees themselves will be able to say, look, these figures um, pay off, which is really a really innovative way to to go about it. Um, sort of talking more about the, the operational franchisee side of the brand, um, you've spoken previously about how Initially, it was quite challenging to find the right coaches and operators in those early years of Little Kickers because, as you said, you know nobody was really doing this. Nobody was offering coaching to children as young as um, as young as two in those early days. Um, what was the the kind of turning point um, from a franchisee perspective in terms of acquisition and finding those people? And then, I suppose, secondary to that, um, what kind of franchisees are you looking for nowadays as you're continuing to uh, evolve around the world? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the initial kind of slight red herring was that um, we thought we needed FA qualified coaches to teach all of our classes. And we thought that that would be really important to parents before they would want to send their kids to the classes. I think we knew at the time that the FA coaching qualification is designed for um, coaches who actually, you know, coaches who, who coach the competitive game, which we're obviously not the competitive game. We're kind of pre that stage, kind of grass seeds versus grassroots, if that makes sense. Um, and I think once we realized that we needed to have FA qualified coaches giving input onto the program itself, but actually doing that in conjunction with nursery school teachers and preschool teachers who actually have that early years experience, and we should create a kind of program that was a kind of intermingling of the two, if that makes sense, then we realized we didn't necessarily need FA qualified coaches. We, we, we could actually train people up ourselves in our program because it was kind of different from anything else that was out there. Um, but, but it was actually very, very appropriate to our age group. So um, that made it easier then because we, we kind of said, well, not everybody has to be an FA qualified coach. Um, we can actually find other people. And our coaches come from a massive range of different backgrounds. And we have a lot of trainee teachers, postmen, um, you know, a huge variety of different people coming on board to be to be coaches. Um, with franchisees, um, I mean, I think it's probably similar to most franchise businesses. You know, it can be quite, quite lonely um, running your own business and you need to be pretty self-motivated to, to keep going with it sometimes. Um, so we look for people who are pretty self-motivated, you know, have a bit of get up and go, ambitious. Um, we don't tend to pit our franchisees against each other to compete we're much more kind of you know we're all in this together let's all work towards the same goal so we're very very much looking for people who are good communicators who get on well with other people and we're very reliant at head office level on feedback from the franchisees so we realized pretty early on that actually we've got this fantastic network and very very smart people who um, are out there every day you know speaking to customers seeing what competitors are doing in their areas um, using all of the operational infrastructure that we've created and that you know they're the best people to tell us what's happening in their local market how we should be developing the brand what customer feedback they're getting to say like you know this is the direction the business should be going in um, and and also looking at operational systems and things like that the franchisees are really good at, at giving us feedback around what we can do to make their lives easier and to enable them to not spend too much time on kind of like routine admin type things but more focusing on how they can actually develop the business and, and the fun side of the business if that makes sense so um so communication with the franchisees is absolutely critical we need people who are good communicators obviously most of them are interested in either football or kids because that's just kind of the nature of what we do um yeah and we, we look for people who are pretty ambitious who don't just want to kind of you know open a couple of classes and sit on their laurels we want them to kind of you know continue to grow over time so that's really it in terms of what we look for in franchisees and that's similar around the world actually yeah and uh, around the world in those global markets do you tend to um operate a a master franchising system or do you do more direct franchising multi-unit how does that kind of work for you yeah it depends on the market so in some markets the initial markets we got into um where you know we at the time we were a small team working from the uk um i hadn't yet taken the step to move to Canada. So our support window was was a bit shorter. Um, we typically would involve master franchisees. So we have a master franchisee in South Africa, masters in Australia, master in New Zealand. But as the business has evolved over time, we've actually now changed how we operate slightly. So we would still have a masters in some countries. So Brazil, for example, we have master franchisees there. 
Um, but in other countries where, you know, they're not necessarily big enough for a network of franchisees to be established. So places like Hong Kong, Cyprus will have um, a large country unit franchisee. And then we have a further model where in, in other countries such as, um, you know, Spain, Mexico, and so on. We we sell franchises directly into those countries, and that's a similar model in the UK. But all, all three models work well for us, and it's kind of, you know, it depends a little bit on the characteristics of the market as to which one we would adopt. Um, but any new international market we go into, we always make sure that the first franchisee into that market runs a minimum six-month pilot so that we can work really closely with them to make sure that we kind of tweak what we do to make sure that it works in their particular market. Because obviously, kind of, you know, lots of different markets require slight tweaks in the way we operate to uh, to make them applicable. Sure, yeah. Um, if we could talk a little about the uh, kind of elephant in the room, I suppose, uh, COVID-19. Undoubtedly, I imagine Little Kickers, uh, your entire global network would have been affected this year as a result of the pandemic. Um, could you talk to a little about how impacted the network has been, but also, um, I suppose, on a maybe silver lining, how much of the concept has been able to return to some kind of normal operation in recent months? I mean, of course, at the minute, you know, <laughs> the day we're recording this, we're on the eve of another UK lockdown, so it might change by the by the day. But um, yeah, How's, how's Little Kickers coped this year? Yeah, I kind of wish you'd asked me this question last week. <laughs> I mean, it depends a little bit on what the uh, what the government comes out with at lunchtime today, but um, sure, yeah. later on today. But um, but yeah, we God, someone had told me a year ago that we would be uh, we would have faced you know nine months of pandemic with multiple closures. I think I would have just been in a massive panic. But um, as it was, we pretty much all of our franchisees went into lockdown. Actually, China went in first um, at the beginning of March, so it gave us a little bit of a kind of taste of, of what was to come for the rest. Of the world um, but then towards the end of March pretty much all of our other markets went into lockdown we realized it, um, it wasn't just going to be a couple of weeks it was going to be probably you know we, we built three months into all of our modeling um, that was tough because we were trying to you know make sure that our franchisees remained motivated and really the, the kind of tricky one of the tricky decisions at that time was do we have, do we try and continue running the business in some form so that the franchisees can keep generating revenue so we had the whole, whole kind of debate around you know whether we move to online classes that was a tricky decision because there was a lot of really good free online content out there like you remember all joe wicks and everything else Mm. Um, and so we we decided that unless we could produce really good quality online content, we couldn't continue to charge customers for it. So um, so what we did was decided that we wanted to keep the kids busy during lockdown, but we, we there was no way really at that point we had any kind of capability to produce quality online content. So uh, we got franchisees to do Facebook posts and get their coaches to do little exercises the kids could do at home and things to continue engaging with the franchisees over that period and. Um, my son and I, and uh, my daughter got involved sometimes as well, but we, my son's now 20 and he's a, he's a little kicker's coach um, part-time while he's a student. But um, we spent a lot of time producing online videos that we could send out more broadly across our kind of social networks and things like that. Um, and you know, the idea behind those was to, to get kids involved in sport from home. So kind of doing our classes effectively in their sitting rooms. Um, so we did, we did a lot of that kind of goodwill, just trying to keep our customer base engaged. Um, but, you know, it's a very, very difficult time. And then when we came out of lockdown, we thought that would be it. But obviously it's been kind of in different countries. We, Melbourne just came out, you know, early November. So it's been a really difficult time in different places around the world. And it has, there hasn't been a consistent approach by different governments. 
um, you know, I think it's and it's such a kind of I don't know a morphing problem that and it's different in every country. It's understandable that the governments all have different approaches, but it does make it very difficult to kind of try and run a business around it. On a positive note, um, the things that that we kind of came out of it as, as a bit of a plus was I think having moved to the monthly recurring revenue program. Um, what we were able to do is rather than having to refund our customers, which I know a lot of other companies like ours who, who do the kind of 12-week courses or book people in for the summer period or whatever in advance, they had to do a lot of refunds. We didn't really have to do many refunds at all. We were able to just put our customers on hold and say, look, you know, stop paying for your classes now and we'll just start you up again as soon as the government says it's safe. So we managed to retain, I think it was about 96% of our customers over that period, which was, which was incredible. Um, and obviously kind of it helped that we kind of tried to maintain the goodwill and doing videos and things like that for them. Um, and um, the other kind of positives, I think, is that the markets we're seeing now who, you know, touch wood, it seems like they're coming out of the other side. So like China, Australia, New Zealand, they're all having a massive uptick in demand for the classes. So I think um, Australia, um, apart from Victoria, you know, because Melbourne's only just come out of lockdown, but the rest of Australia were up about 30% on this time last year. Um, New Zealand were up, I think it's 50% on this time last year. China were up as well. So I think what we, what we realised is that even when the kind of the immediate danger of spiking cases of the pandemic is over, parents are very, very keen to get their kids to come back to classes to do some physical exercise and to socialise with other kids, but in a safe kind of environment. So we're very strict around all the kind of COVID policies and things like that. So, um, so I think that possibly is why we're seeing such a big uptick in those countries. So we're hoping it'll happen everywhere. But at the moment, you know, as you were saying, we don't know what the outcome of the, uh, the government debate is going to be today. We're really hoping we'll be able to stay open. But uh, at this stage, we're not 100% sure. So what we did do, um, month or so ago was we put in place the capability for our franchisees to run online classes um the idea behind those is we thought we might get a lockdown maybe for a week or two kind of similar to what they had the, uh, the circuit breaker in wales um and we wanted our kids to be able to carry on working towards their badges over that period and the idea was that you know if we can set it up so we have a, a child's usual coach at the usual time of the week and they could see all the other kids in the zoom class that they're normally in a class with that's a a pretty good alternative, well, the best kind of alternative we can give them to actual live classes. And because we had a couple of months back at work, kind of after the last lockdown, we were able to set up the infrastructure for that. So uh, quite a few of our UK franchisees are going to be doing that, I think, this time around, if we do end up getting locked down again, which hopefully we won't. <laughs> yeah, sure. It sounds like you're taking as as much of a proactive approach as you can. I mean, obviously, as we both said, you know, it, it is very touch and go all over the world, but um, you're at least pre as prepared as you can be. Um, on more of a, a positive note, uh, one of the brands, one of Little Kickers' goals back at the beginning of this year, obviously, you know, this was in a pre-COVID world, a much uh, more optimistic place, um, was for the brand to become one of the most eco-friendly kids football clubs by the end of this year. Um, and I was curious whether that target is still a, a big part of the brand and kind of what you're doing to to work towards that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's a big part of the brand. We had um, our first global franchise conference back at Old Trafford um, in Manchester in October last year. And one of the key requests that the franchisees had, and they've been hearing a lot from their customers, was that they wanted us to be more eco-friendly in the merchandise we produce. So at the moment, every child who signs up for classes gets a, uh, a little kicker's football strip. Those are made out of 100% polyester. 
um, they're packaged in single-use plastic bags, so really not environmentally friendly at all. And I think most of the football industry seems to be the same. That's kind of you know pretty much standard. And our franchisees really wanted us to look at how we could change that and become more eco-friendly because we're getting about 100,000 of these produced every year, and obviously that's not great for the environment. So uh, what we decided to do, we found a company that can um, make recycled uh, they take recycled plastic bottles from the ocean and they can turn those into fabric turn it into yarn that they then weave into fabric and um, it's actually amazing I, I got samples through a couple of months ago and it feels very similar to the old fabric that we had you know kind of wicking polyester um but uh, yeah so we were all set to to embark on this you know new new fabric and our eco-friendly business back in june this year but uh, unfortunately the new uniforms are slightly more expensive and what we didn't want to do is in the middle of a pandemic um, increase any of our prices for franchises or customers or anything else so uh, so we've got that on hold until things are a bit back on a, a bit more of an even footing but it's definitely still in the cards and uh, one of the other kind of big important aspects of that program is that um, we're going to be introducing a scheme where children when they finish their little kickers classes can give back the uniforms if they want to and we'll give them a wristband in return and then the uniforms will get taken down to um, six orphanages in South Africa by volunteer coaches from little kickers um, together with kit and equipment so goals and balls and things like that that will be needed to run our classes and the coaches will train up people in those orphanages um, on how to run our program and provide all the children with uniforms and things like that and that's kind of we've done a little bit of a pilot over the last two or three years on that we've been sending volunteer coaches out to Malawi with kit and equipment and things like that to a preschool over there and um, and the reception's been fantastic the coaches absolutely love going um, and the kids love the classes and it's just been really positive because even when the coaches then come back to the UK, um, you know, they leave behind the training that they've given to the teachers at the preschool and they can continue to run our classes and, and the coaches quite often will stay in touch with them and make sure that they're kind of on track with everything. So, um, so yeah, that's the kind of bigger plan around it. And we're really hoping if the pandemic kind of eases off um, next year, it's probably going to take us about three months, six months based on kind of ordering cycles um, to be able to implement the recycled uniforms. But that's, that's certainly something that's high on our agenda for the future. Yeah, so even though it has been slightly halted this year, it sounds like 2021 could really be um, the greenest year for Little Kickers yet, which is really exciting Definitely. for both well franchisees and also, I suppose, your your customers who are looking, you know, so a lot of um, the consumers now are looking for sustainable brands. So it's just another arrow in your quiver, really. Um, looking ahead at 2021, actually, while we're on it, Christine, the, the last thing I wanted to, to ask you about was just uh, initially... I know that you'd established these five key expansion markets for Little Kickers, which were the UK, Germany, Spain, Mexico, and India. Um, uh, and I was wondering whether that's still, those five are still your main regions for growth or whether there are other um, locations that you think the brand could really thrive in that it maybe not, uh, maybe doesn't operate in at the moment. Yeah, I mean, those are still, those are the markets where we're selling um units franchises and uh, those are still markets that we're very keen on focusing on the uk actually we've been really surprised but uh, october was one of our most successful months ever for selling franchises in the uk which is kind of surprising considering we're kind of in a mid-pandemic mm. but yeah there's still a few areas left to go in the uk so that's definitely still a high priority for us um mexico we are 
still trying to sell franchise into Mexico, unit franchises. We actually, we've sold two during or since March into Mexico, which has been really exciting when you consider that, you know, that the situation has been pretty, pretty bad over there um, with regards to COVID. But we actually did our first ever fully online training for franchisees um, with Mexican franchisees back in April. So that was a kind of real positive step forward. And we're getting quite a lot of, India, uh, of interest from Mexico as well. Um, Spain and Germany, we had a franchisee all ready to go for Germany back in March, but unfortunately that's all on hold now. And we're hoping that uh, that we'll launch there next year when, when things have calmed down a bit. I mean, obviously it's not the best time in the world to be launching preschool football classes at the moment. Um, and Spain, similar to Germany, where the situation's pretty bad there. So we're still getting the odd inquiry, but it's actually no one wants to actually start anything up at this stage. Um, the other big market, actually, that we're kind of quite keen to um, to venture into is Japan. I think it's a very obvious market for little kickers in terms of, you know, the, the, we have an English language program. So we teach kids English through um, the little kickers football program. And that is something that I think there'll be quite a lot of demand for in Japan, potentially. Um, so, you know, it's an area that we're going to be focusing on this year and probably trying to do a bit of marketing to get some more franchisees from, from that area. Um, but yeah, that's that's about it in terms of, I mean, certainly if people approach us from different markets and we think that there's, you know, they do a good business case and we think that there's good potential in those markets, definitely we'll look to expand into those. But, uh, but those are the key ones that we're really trying to market the, the franchises into this year. For sure. Yeah. So even though, um, as you say, there's certain countries where it is still very touch and go on a global scale, it sounds like the brand is at least still seeing uh, a lot of demand and a lot of um yeah, just really showcasing why Little Kickers is such a, uh, a ubiquitous concept at the moment. Um, well, thank you very much for your time today, Christine. It was really interesting hearing about the growth of your brand and also, you know, the future of it moving forward with these greener initiatives. Um, and yeah, I'm just really excited to see what the future is for Little Kickers, wherever it's moving into Japan at some point next year or other markets that maybe you hadn't even considered at the moment where you get um, franchisees coming to you. That's great. Well, thank you very much, Kieran. It was really nice to chat to you. Thanks very much. The story behind Little Kickers almost feels like a poster child for franchising as a lifestyle choice with Christine wanting to spend more time with her son uh, and finding a fun and lucrative way to do it while also balancing work and family. There was also some really great tidbits for franchisors that transcend industries throughout our conversation, like how uh, the Little Kickers shift to a, a monthly recurring membership model increased franchisee revenues by 25%. That, combined with the brand's dedication to being communicative with parents and franchisees, could explain how they managed to retain 96% of customers during lockdown earlier this year. We'd be keen to hear your thoughts on this. What operational changes have you made that have allowed your brand to financially thrive? Make sure to let us know. If you like the podcast, subscribe and recommend it to your friends and colleagues. Or even better, leave a review or a simple rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your pods. To keep up to date with franchise news and have it put into context by the global franchise experts, subscribe to the magazine, hit us up at globalfranchisemagazine.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn today.